Yeah, yeah, definitely. So then we need somebody to look up to for who working hard and that shit paying off and they stand down, bang, you yeah. know, keeping faith, whatever, whatever. Definitely look to Ed, man. So, yeah, never give up on yourself, bro. A lot of us, you know, look up to you from a distance or up close, you know, for our own inspirations and keep us motivated. So, yeah. Welcome to the Dreams by Any Means Motivation Station. I'm your host, Ed Doxon. I want to thank you all for tuning in to today and listening. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank everyone that's been supporting the podcast since we started in January of this year. Now we're here in June and we're starting off season two. And um, today I have a very special guest. I know I say that a lot on the podcast, but today I really, really do have a very, very special guest. Um, this is someone that I met during my time at Delaware State. I don't want to say my sophomore year. Um, and it was at a time where, you know, myself, my friends around me, Francis, um, Dwight, you know, all the different young guys from D.C., you know, we were a part of a, an initiative that Aussie, um, you know, D.C. Tag had put on campus to kind of help the retention rate. And, you know, we had different people and leaders that uh, would guide us and mentors and teach us how to mentor the younger people that were from D.C. on campus. But this specific person who I have here today, um, you know, really, really made a great impact on our lives, was genuine, was solid. Um, it was very effective and, you know, you, sometimes you always meet people that you don't never forget. And, you know, I remember when I, we reconnected on LinkedIn, not even just recently, but when I was out in Vegas and mm -hmm. those type of things and just seeing all the things you were doing from afar because, um, you know, it was amazing. And um, I'm talking about Mr. Dax Devlin Ross. Wow. It means a lot, um, Ed, that you had me on to start off season two. Um, and the things you just said to open up this conversation mean a whole lot to me. And uh, I'm really excited to be able to be in a conversation with you, my friends. So thank Absolutely. you for inviting me on. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Now, um, you know, the, the, the purpose of this podcast, um, you know, outside of why I started and, and um, you know, exploring and opening up people to my network, is just mainly that, you know, dreams by any means for me, you know, that's my Instagram handle, mm -hmm. my Twitter handle is something that I adopted to, to me to kind of live by. But, you know, what I say at the end of this episode is, you know, this is where faith plus hustle equals success. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of been my formula that I always say for success. But the people that are involved on this show, I think that they exemplify, you know, what faith and hustle can do um, as far as like, you know, success, whether that's in the career world, whether that's in entrepreneurship, yeah. whatever the case is. So, you know, um, for those listening, man, Dax has a lot going on, um, you know, a lot of things going on um, coming up. You know, a lot of big, great things, but I just want to jump into it to, you know, let people understand who you are, where you're from, um, you know, your upbringing, just, you know, let people know, you know, uh, who's next. Yeah. Um, it's such a big question. You know, we're sitting right now in my home, right, which is in Washington, D.C., Upper Northwest, 16th Street Heights. Um, I've been living here now for about six months, and I share that because... If you'd ask me this time last year, would I be living in Washington, D.C. again in my life? I would have said, nah, not happening. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I grew up in D.C. during the 1980s and early 1990s before mm -hmm. I went off to college, right. Rutgers University. And um, the D.C. I grew up in was very different than the D.C. that it is now. Yeah. And the D.C. I grew up in was one... You know, I had a lot at my, my, my early childhood was, was incredible. I grew up in a neighborhood called Shepherd Park. I'm incredibly proud to come from. Mm -hmm. It was a, a neighborhood that was, you know, a thriving black middle class neighborhood. And uh, 
a lot of folks of color, but also just it was also intermixed with white people too, had been living in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It was one of the neighborhoods in DC that was intentionally integrated in a way that I think a lot of places have never experienced yeah. because it felt very natural for me to grow up in that environment. But as I got older, DC was changing. Um, so we're talking about moving into the eighties and we're moving into a time in which as many of us know and are familiar with crack begins to infiltrate all neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. It, and I always say it creeps uptown. It yeah. didn't just stay in one pocket. It mm-hmm. got everywhere. And so by the time I get to 16, 17 years old, a lot of my friends, you know, close dear friends are, are starting to get into that get into that life, get into the life. Yeah. And, you know, DC became a very fearful place for me. Yeah. By the time I was 17, 18 years old to go out with my friends, it was, it was a frightening thing because you didn't know what was going to happen. Right. Because there was just so much angst in the city and it was just, and it felt like at any given time, in any given place, things could just pop off. Yeah. And so for me, I just wanted to get away from D.C. Mm-hmm. Even though I had come up in a middle-class neighborhood, even though I had gone to you know, a private school, I had all these things that, that my parents had tried to structure. But the reality was that when you're dealing with a small place and you're dealing with a drug that was doing what it was doing to our communities in our city, um, no one is exempted from that. Yeah, yeah. So for me to come back, so I left and was like, I'm not coming back here. Mm-hmm. I would come back and visit family, come back for some work sometimes. But, you know, I wanted to get and be in New York and be away from this, you know, some of this, what was I experiencing. But the pandemic changes things. Yeah, yeah, it changed everything. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, man, you hit something on the head, I think that was interesting. Because as you were saying, you know, you, you, you maybe didn't grow up east of the river but during that crack era, it seemed like, you know, it, it impacted everywhere, no matter where you were. You know, we learn about the history of during that crack epidemic um, in D.C. And they tell you about, you know, the high class lawyers and doctors that were driving over to some of these neighborhoods, you know, to get the drugs. So just to kind of just say that you were saying like your friends started getting to it. It was yeah. kind of like no matter what part of the city you were at, this thing could reach you like yeah. that quick. And and, it's, and that was like a good to me that at a, at a younger age, I didn't fully process you know what the lesson in that was, yeah. But I think as an older person, I've processed the lesson. The lesson as, you know, it's not just about. You can't just think that you're going to protect yourself in your own. You know, we in this together, mm-hmm. and we have to find ways and recognize that. For me to for me to transform my reality, I have to help and be involved in transforming your reality too. Right. It's not just about me getting out. You know? Yeah. I mean, Pac said that back in the day. You know, it's yeah. like it's it doesn't matter. If, 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 uh, it does matter. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but the reality is that given the fragility of particularly black communities, our neighbor, even the middle class, middle class status is still a fragile state for a lot of black folks because it's typically not about wealth, it's about income. Right. And right. income can change yeah. real quick, yeah. you know? So for me, the lesson that I've, I've, I, one of the lessons that became really important to me, and partly why I started doing the work that I do and did, particularly when I met you in my life, was, I recognized that I had had some opportunities and some some things that really um, provided me the opportunity to travel, to be educated, to sort of, and but that didn't make me in any way different. Right. And so I wanted to be, and I longed to be, and I hungered to be connected to, to 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 like my community, to my to younger people, to people like you. Yeah. Like it is important. It is really important to me. When you said last week when we talked and you said, you know, um, what it meant to me, what it meant for you to have met and worked with me. I, it meant so much for me to hear that because it means that however I've gone and wherever I've gone and done in my life that you can still see me. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. that you can still see me. And I want that to always be the case is that no matter what happens in my life, whatever I accomplish, that people, when I move in the world, people like I see him and he, I see myself in him and I see that he sees me. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's important. Yeah, yeah. No, no. And that's key. And, and I, I understand, like, you know, you're saying your ideal thing was like, hey, you decided to move away from this and I don't want to be this. And you end up coming back. Because I think, you know, not, uh, like you said, Pop, you know, Nas said something in one of his songs, uh, forget what album, but he said, you know, a lawyer left the hood and he never looked back. Mm-hmm. And I say that to say because, I mean, of course, like, we, we growing up in poverty, you growing up in these situations in the city, you want to escape this. Understood. But Understood. Your, 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 you know, the, the side of you that may have a good heart, you think about, like, ooh, I could have easily slipped in the cracks and I could have yeah. became this person or that person. But also, I think for me is that I learned the importance that in order for somebody to model you, you got to see them every day. You got to be present. You got to be, you know, mm-hmm. there. And I say that to say is that, you know, you coming back to the city or like just through Aussie and the work you did yeah. with us is like, we could have looked at you from afar and they could have told us your story. Like, oh, you know, this is the person that's doing this and doing that. But you were there. Yeah. I feel like, and I feel like that's the difference of like, you know, when, you, but the also thing too is because I used to always think of, you know, I dealt with that when I went away to college. You know, I was like, God, I'm the only one that kind of went away to school. You mm-hmm. kind of feel a little bad survivor's remorse. Mm-hmm. But then when I started to move around, it's like, well, okay, these experiences that I'm getting, the network of people that I'm meeting, like, I could take this back, yeah. you know, to the neighborhood. Or I could take yeah. these type of conversations back to mm-hmm. influence. So um, I'm just saying that to say, like, I yeah. feel that, like, where it's like, you kind of you kind of get torn. It's like, it's, you know, you feel Oh, like absolutely. Torn. Absolutely. I mean, because you got to live your life, too. And you have to, you know, pursue your own aspirations in life. But I think, you know, part of part of what I have had to do, even in coming back to a city I haven't lived in in 20 years, is allow the city to be new for me. Mm-hmm. You know, to not allow the baggage of my previous experience here to inform and shape and dictate my experience of the place now. Yeah. For me, part of what I had to do, even in many, for, and I write about this in my new book, mm-hmm. um, I, I had to do is really kind of reconcile some of the, um, I would have to say, anger that I felt that I, when I saw gentrification begin to really, really take hold of the city. Right. I was bitter about that because, you know, my dad had an office on V Street. Okay. 13th, between 13th and 14th. And, you know, that was cracked out in the 80s. And it was... He invested in that. He bought a building down there and he invested in the community with the hope that his presence there could make a difference. But he got robbed regularly. Hmm. He got robbed. He would just, he would it just, he couldn't stay there. Couldn't yeah. be there. And the resentment that I felt is that the kind of policing and law enforcement infrastructure and apparatus that has come to protect that, those spaces now that allows for gentrification that has allowed for businesses to re- decide to, 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 to reinvest in those same neighborhoods wasn't there for him. Yeah. And that's what I think still, I still struggle with emotionally is that when black people move to a neighborhood, it doesn't also increase the safety. It doesn't create, it doesn't create and stimulate the business. It doesn't mean that, you know, real estate value is going to, you know, ultimately um, increase in the mm-hmm. same way because race is still such a prevalent way in which, you know, wealth, of course, is accumulated, but also wealth and property is valued. So mm-hmm. the fact that him, if if him being there in that neighborhood didn't matter because mm-hmm. he was still a black guy there mm-hmm. and being a black guy in the neighborhood didn't mean the police were going to care differently, didn't right. mean that the city was going to make a different kind of investment. But what I, what, what white people start to move in, that we start to see that stuff shift 
And I will say some of it has to do with advocacy too. People have yeah. to organize themselves and say, listen, we're going to make sure this neighborhood is going to be right. effectively, is going to be treated differently. We're going to make sure the police do their job. We're going to make sure X, Y, and Z happens. But, you know, it didn't, it didn't happen that way for yeah. him. And I had to reconcile for myself, like, it bothers me. Mm-hmm. It continues to bother me because I look at the city right now. And I mean, yeah, this is a housing right. boom and you see these houses are all like going for millions of dollars and you know that a lot of folks, young, particularly younger black families, families of color can't, they don't have the wealth to come in and do all cash buy, all cash buy yeah. on a million yeah. dollar home because that's what's happening. And so it just seems like how do we also benefit is mm-hmm. the question. How do we also benefit from when things get better? Yeah. You know, it's something that I've had to, um, like I said, for years I struggled with it. I was angry about it. I didn't like it. I felt like we always get the short, short end of the stick. And then I think mm-hmm. I've learned to have a bit more empathy, compassion, and understanding and patience in recognizing that this is a long journey we're on. You know, we didn't just get in this situation where we live in a country where there's such disparity. And to undo that is going to take a long and, you know, a, a significant commitment on the part of a lot of people. So, you know, coming home is that, that mindset and that mind change needed to happen for me to be able to come back here and embrace the city that I grew up in as a new place and as a home for me that I could be happy in and raise my family in. Right. 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 No, that's, that's, uh, that's great stuff, man, because it, you know, hearing you share that story and talking about your dad and talking about your upbringing, you know, I think for me, it gives me more understanding of, you know, your work as far as dealing with urban education, your work as far as making sure, you know, it's an even, even level playing field. And I say that because, you know, we all know is that, like Malcolm said, you know, education is the passport to the future. Yeah. So kind of hearing what you're saying about you, like, you know, my dad had this here and I noticed that the city was, you know, was going in these different ways. So kind of tap into and, um, you know, talk about, you know, how did you get into, you know, education and, and, and yeah. you know, those type things. Because um, I know you have a, a deep background in that. It's a great. So, um, I mean, it's funny. My first experience as an educator, actually, um, a formal educator happened when I was in law school. So I went to, I came back to D.C. I did come back for the short stint after I finished college. And I went to GW, George Washington University for law school. Mm-hmm. Didn't become a lawyer ultimately, but I did graduate. I did, did do I did you know did my thing while I was there. But while I was there, I needed to make money. You know, I mean, uh, in my third year in particular, you know, some for, I, I knew by my third year in law school I didn't want to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. and I wasn't I, intellectually it was interesting in many ways, but I didn't want to practice law. I wanted to do something different with my life. I wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to do some things. So. On the campus of GW was School Without Walls. Right. Mm-hmm. And School Without Walls, you know, for folks who might know anything about D.C. and who don't know, but School Without Walls is like one of those specialized schools in D.C. And the whole partic- the whole purpose of this school is to allow for the city to be a laboratory for learning for young people. So part mm-hmm. of, when I was there, when I went into that building as a substitute teacher, you know, students have basically signed a document at the beginning of the year and their parents signed off so that they could literally leave in the middle of the day. Like, I didn't have to get permission to take the kids out of the classroom. I'd be like, I walk into the classroom some days and substitute teacher's like, all right, we're going to the museum. And we would just go. Or we're going to go to, we're going to go to Howard and I just go. And we would just be out. But it relates to the name, okay. That was. That was the whole purpose. So, so I, remember, I would take the students over. And I, that experience, I had a, I was given a, uh, an 11th grade class, English class and a 12th grade English class. Because uh, their, 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 their teacher, the longtime teacher, he was out. And he was ill. I don't know what exactly had happened, but he was out for a significant period of time. Okay. And so that was my first experience. I had never taught anything before yeah. at that point. And here I am teaching high school English. 
And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And I loved being in the classroom with these young people. And they and I was teaching them Great Gatsby. And I remember teaching them. Uh, and I taught James Baldwin's Another Country. And we we intermixed art. And we would go to galleries. And I was we would sit outside and have these classroom experiences. And I realized what I was doing was trying to, in many ways, replicate some of the experience that I had had at Sidwell. Because mm-hmm. I had gone to Sidwell Friends. And a lot of my experience at Sidwell had been this very liberal education that was designed to to make education feel like inquiry and exploration and not like rote learning. Yeah. And I wanted to, to try that and do that with others who hadn't had the same experience of like a Sidwell, for instance. Mm-hmm. That, got, that sparked my initial passion. Then I moved to, after I finished law school, I moved to, D, I moved to New York. And one of my first, and I, and I honestly, I, I moved to New York to be a writer. You know, people are, you know, why I moved because I knew that the only way I could become, in my head at least, and at that time, the only way I was going to make it as a writer is if I was in the place where writing happened. Mm-hmm. And I needed to go mix it up. And I needed to go. I had a book I had written. And I was like, I had this whole dream in my head. I'm like, I had written a book. And yeah. I said, to get up there and I need to meet somebody. And they're going to get it published. And that's not how it works. But in trying to make a living and survive in a place like New York, you got to figure out what you can do. Mm-hmm. And um, I, had to, I had a passion for students and for education for young people. And I had a passion for being a role model. And so I started working at the police athletic league initially. And then, then I became a New York City teaching fellow. And I went back to school and I, you know, for graduate for another degree. And I started teaching middle school in East New York. And then I started teaching in other parts of the city. And I just, and education became, for me, at least in my late 20s and early 30s, it became uh, a way for me to feel continuously connected to my community mm-hmm. and to my, and to, to young people and, and I wasn't a great teacher because yeah. I wasn't committed enough to, to like, I was, I was, I was a great role model who was, who I knew some things and I had, an, I had like an, I had a skill set, but I, I knew people who were dedicated educators. And I, so at a certain point I realized like this isn't my specific calling, like the classroom isn't going to be where I find the most success, but I can still have success and influence in the lives of young people. So how else can I do that? And so I transitioned from there to into some other work, work you know, just in a, in a different lane because the classroom was not necessarily Wasn't. why the way I was going to be the most successful. Right, right. But I, but I'll say I'll respectfully disagree with you. You were a great teacher because I think you brought a different perspective. Where you know, like I do know educators who are you know went to school for it. They always wanted to be a teacher, whatever the case may be. But I think your experience of what you just said of Sid well, growing up in D.C. to crack. You know, I think, and you say you were in law school at the time. I started. I finished law school by the time I got. By the time you got to school, I was. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in my third year, so I was. I would go to class in the morning, or I'd have my schedule <clears> set up so that I could just, or I just would skip class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was like, I just, I just started to teach. You yeah. Know? And I became an organic teacher. I mean, I was right. an organic learner, and I think where I struggled, why, if I could really be honest about why, like I would, I, you know, I think at some point I'll probably do some teaching in college or whatever, but yeah. The idea of teaching to a curriculum, I couldn't do. Yeah, same thing. The I idea agree. of of like standardized tests, because a lot of what my teaching was being being funneled towards, and what the expectation was built around, was that these young people had to be. I just didn't fundamentally believe that it actually was learning. I felt yeah. like that was that was uh, a sort of social conditioning that was designed to um, ensure that young people hit certain box, check certain boxes, mm-hmm. so that pol- politicians could say that. They were meeting certain standards so that they could get elected. It wasn't nothing. It was not about our education. It was yeah. about, you know, you know, it was about a whole, it was about a lot more and a lot other than. And so I just was like, I don't want to be a participant in this. 
I'm not going to down talk about it. I'm not right. going to denigrate anybody else for making that choice. But I can't be a part of this. Yeah, no, no, I feel that, bro. Because I, um, I, I remember I was just talking to a friend the other day about a program in the city. And, you know, I was just giving him my feedback, giving him feedback on it. I was like, you know, man, I was like, the program has a good, like, it was like a good mission, but it was like the curriculum and stuff. I was like, I just yeah. felt like it wasn't realistic to yeah. the population that yeah. you are presenting to. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree with that. But no, just, I was just saying, you know, I think you bring in that different perspective to the classroom and then where you ended up after the classroom, right. I think it was just great. Cause it's like the foundation, like you said, you realize Absolutely. you wasn't in the classroom, but you didn't realize, you know, you moved on and did other things, but you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you were doing things that were affecting teachers who were teaching in the classroom. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think like, um, one happens, I guess, you know, for any younger person who's exploring, listening to this, or watching this, I think you have a vision for how you might want your, you think your life is supposed to unfold. For sure. Um, <laughs> and, and then you, and, and at a certain point, and, you know, for some people that's earlier, some people that's later, um, the you know not I don't like to use the word reality as a negative thing because I don't mean it that way but just the reality of life starts to kick in in different ways and you you're, you're confronted with decisions yeah and you can either choose to think of those as roadblocks and barriers or opportunities and so and I do think partly me being and living and choosing to be and to stay in New York was significant in so far as if I was going to survive in that place where I didn't have like rooted connections yeah. didn't have I was going to have to learn how to hustle. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I hadn't had to had to really do growing up, because you know I was I grew up somewhat middle class. I grew up I I hadn't had to learn how to hustle until I got to New York. So mm-hmm. I always say that New York taught me is like if you're gonna survive, boy, yeah. you're gonna learn how to work, <laughs> and you're gonna learn how to do more than one thing, yeah. and you're gonna learn how to do this, that, and the third, and you're mm-hmm. gonna figure it out, and you're gonna roll with it, and you're gonna learn how to network, and you're gonna do all these things because if you want to make it, and meaning make it doesn't have to mean like make it make it, but make it means like have a roof over your head, yeah. be able to survive. You're going to need to be able to be nimble and be adaptable and be able to have a variety of skills that you can lean upon. So what I learned early on, even in my journey in New York, was that I'm always going to have, and I still continue to to this day, have a hybrid career. Like if I want to write and I still, I was able to, and I was able to publish my first book when I was 30 years old. And that did mean a whole lot. And I still was able to kind of continue, but that wasn't the only way I was going to be able to navigate the world. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't set up for me that, okay, I could write a book and now I could just go chill and life. That's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to then go hustle that thing. And then it's still going to make a living. So I learned early on in my, you know, my adulthood that if I'm going to thrive, I'm going to need to figure out how to have multiple streams, not yeah. just of income, but like multiple outlets for my aspirations. One of those things that I care deeply about is helping, helping people. Yeah, and so even in my work now, I help organizations and I help people within organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, but my other passion, it deeply is, I want to write and I have a I have a voice that I want to put into the world and I want to be able to be creative and I want to I want to support and nurture my dreams, you know. And so I had to figure out how to do that and recognize that unless you are born with a silver spoon or have some really unique opportunity where you're able to just act require, then you're gonna have to. Just grind, yeah, yeah. you know, and that grind isn't going to stop and you need to learn how to love it, you mm-hmm. know, and love it and understand that that's, that is making you better every single day. It's preparing yeah. you for everything that you come up against. So by the time I met you and you, we are, we came into each other's lives. Like I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the work that I had had to do and needed to do, I was, I had completed some of the early phases and stages of that. And I was able to then now, um, 
I think, be a role model for people in their, at that phase of their life. Because when I was younger, I could only really do that work with people who were probably in their you know, middle school, high school. But by the time I encountered you all when you were in college, I feel like I had done some of my own maturation and development and understanding and growth such that I could offer where you were in your life journey, offer you something of value. Yeah. For your, you know, for what you were going through, because I didn't go to HBCU, mm-hmm. I went to a predominantly white institution. I, but I, but I did understand the value of mentorship. I understood yeah. the value of what does it mean to have people in your life who don't just sort of drop in and say what up and check on you, but like who are on you, right? And who like my success is your success. Um, yeah, y'all was honest, man. <laughs> because you had to be, yeah. because because I realized at that phase in life, you know, part of what I I, I remember is that biggest challenge is consistency mm-hmm. the biggest challenge is discipline mm-hmm. and those who are successful are able to develop the level of discipline discipline and consistency because i see a lot of y'all could do well one day yeah y'all could do well right. a couple <laughs> days a week but it'd be like can you do it every day though yeah yeah can you not let that distraction that you know all oh, that party i need to go to or that thing that just because that's when it, and then once it happens you get off that once it, and it only takes like one day or one distraction that's or one and then you're off and you're done that's what I, I'm. I battle with that now. Where like sometimes I I have to lock in, and my friends will be like, like, oh, you know, they be like, Ed is in his grind mode. But it's like because I easily could get distracted, yeah. and I understand. Like I got an addictive addictive personality, so it's like when I go running, I do five miles. The next day I want to do six, seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I'm with so you. I'm just it's the same way. with positive stuff as yeah. well as negative stuff. So <laughs> I be mindful of that. Like you know what? If I need to lock in, I need to lock in. But yeah, agree, though. Yeah, agree. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and um. I mean, I think like I also started to develop what I like to consider as like a much more political awareness, an awareness of myself as a black man. And that is a political being, mm-hmm. you know, political, not as like a, you know, running for office or like an electoral, but as a political body in the world, meaning um, the, you know, and some of this had to do with interactions with the police that just are inevitable and that people just need to understand Like when you're a young black man in America, it, it is inevitable. Like, it's not something you have to go looking for or seeking out, but you recognize that there are some things that you're just going to have to encounter. So when I say as a political being, just sort of recognizing that, you know, what is what is oppression at a, at a systemic and structural level and mm-hmm. how does it function and under, how does it operate? How does, um, and then therefore, how do I begin to navigate within a, within a set of structures and systems that actually are designed, you know, I don't go so far as to say designed for me to fail, but they're designed in many ways um, for, for someone else. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily designed um, with me in mind, right. you know? And so, um, and then therefore recognizing that I have to then use that knowledge and that wisdom and to support and help other people who may not be aware of themselves as, as political beings in the world. And uh, that those kind of things and that awareness that a lot of it came through reading, a lot of it came through like lived experience, yeah. a lot of it came through relationships and conversations with people, but just generating a deeper, more clarified, nuanced understanding of 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 myself beyond me being an individual moving through the world. You know, I don't live just for myself. I don't live just so I could be successful. And I go back to the point I made earlier in our conversation. I live because my father. You know, I talk about my dad a lot, and my mom is incredibly important to my life. She's incredibly vital. She's a resilient, super, she's an amazing human being. Yeah. And I also recognize that my father's been passed away for a number of years, but I recognize that a lot of the things that um, that were afforded to me throughout my life were because of decisions that my dad made mm-hmm. and that were made for him. You know, he came up, he grew up in the South, 
in the 1950s and 1960s. Okay. I always tell people like, you know, where, he where, was where exactly? in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. So he grew up, he was the same age as Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tell people like, uh, we, he and I never talked about it, but one of my favorite writers is this not, it's guy named, his name is John Edgar Wyman. John Edgar okay. Wyman is, um, he's, you know, incredibly um, decorated. He's like the second black road scholar, I think. Okay. His history is amazing. He went to the University of Pennsylvania, played basketball there, was all, all, you know, was, was all everything. Yeah. And then he became a road scholar and then he started, he became a novelist and a fiction writer and a nonfiction writer. But one of the things he wrote about was, in one of his books, he wrote a significant about Emmett Till. He was the same age as my father and they were the same age as Emmett Till. Okay. And he tells this story of when he was 14 years old, seeing the image of Emmett Till in Jet, in Jet Magazine, seeing his, his body, seeing his disfigured face. And I try to think about what that must have been like for my father, who was the same age and only was two months older than, two months younger than Emmett Till, to to have heard that news, to have learned that somebody his exact age, his body had been destroyed because he had purportedly looked and made some inappropriate, quote unquote, remark to a white woman. And so for him to have grown up in the South, the segregated South, which it was, to find a way to do well enough in high school for him to get a scholarship to to college, and he got a scholarship. He was he was he was supposed to go to University of Virginia, UVA. But when they okay. found out he was black, yeah, wow. they actually said, "No, we're going to pay for you to go to Howard." Wow. So that he ended up going to Howard, and when he went to Howard, he decided to study um, engineering. He ended up being mm. president of his class, and then he ended up graduating, and he was one of the first engineers ever hired at Pepco here in DC, which is the power company. Right. And like, I didn't find out some of this stuff until he passed away, and his friends told me some of these stories. Yeah. And I was going to ask that too, just thinking about um, just you saying like I grew up in the South, yeah. where, you know, we came from. You know, I noticed the people from those areas. He probably never really talked about it. No. Nah. It was just like nah. I'm just this is I'm I'm nah. doing it and doing it. Like but it's nah. like nothing they No. Nah. Well like now with our generation everything is transparent, you know, we yeah. talk about it, it's in real time. Yeah. But I noticed with in that generation it just is more like I'm doing my part. Well it's funny, there's a I, I do some I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea of generations. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I identify as a Gen Xer, you know, and mm-hmm. Gen Xers are you know, people who are born like you know, they say 1965 to 1980 and a lot of, um, but my father was, he was what was considered a, what they call the silent generation. And this is a generation that's, um, pre they're older than the boomers. Okay. So there's like the greatest generation, which is the folks who fought in the war. And then my dad was born during the war, World War II. And then there's the boomers who were born after the war. Like, so that's where the baby, that's where the name baby boomer comes from. But the silent generation is like my father is a member of. Yeah. And some of that is, you know, literally has to do with the way in which that generation, I think, was raised around its own understanding of its identity uh, and around its sort of the way it used voice, talked about voice. So that, so that, 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 that person who didn't speak a lot, that's who he was, you know. And I and I have this picture of my when I graduated from high school, is a picture of, of me and him and my little brother, um, and he's just not smiling. And I always think about that picture because it's not that he wasn't pleased that you know I had made another accomplishment in life, but I recognize him as an older person that he didn't ever really express joy. And I don't know if it was because he didn't feel like he had the latitude and space to, or just because that wasn't what he was raised to do. But I do think some of it had to do with <clears throat> the things that you see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I was going to, cause I'm glad you just said it because I was going to think what you just said earlier, just about, you know, knowing just like 
I had to have multiple skills, multiple streams yeah. of income, multiple whatever. But just saying, like, you know, as a black man, it's like the things that you see, the things you overcome is like, sometimes I'm saying, I think back then it was more like you hold it in, it was man up. But, you yeah. know, it's my generation now where, in the generation here today where it's the be open and don't be yeah. so hard on. But it was like, man, if you was a black man, you would know why we walk around like this. Right. Like, you know, because right. like you treated, we now it's, it's more transparent. We see the police brutality stuff. Right. We see the... But it was always happening. Yeah, it's always happening. We see the, the people at the park falsely calling the police yeah. on black men. So, like, all the things that I think now is yeah. on the internet is, like, imagine your dad, my grandfather, they were going through that, but and no one's like, talked about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talk about this as, like, uh, you know, I think about, from a cultural standpoint, it's been valuable to have the visibilizing of, of the sort of terror on black bodies. Mm-hmm. It's been valuable for people to have to see it as frightening and as horrific as it is. Because ultimately this culture has a disbelief of black people's stories. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't believe. And we even see this happening. Even we right started now. to believe it. Even That's we disbelieve it. Part. It's like, you know, I, I was, um, I, I think about, and so I think about with somebody like with my father's generation, my mother's generation, but you know that I think that there's a recognition that they had was like, you just let the work really just show up. You have to just let your work be your word. You have to let your let your actions be the show and prove. Yeah. And they also just didn't have latitude for that. Like, yeah. a there wasn't the mechanism and mediums to actually express. But right. beyond that, like, if him for him to go into you know, an all white work environment and start talking about like his unfair treatment. Yeah. What do you think would have happened in right. the 19th? That's not going to lead to him getting a promotion. It's yeah. not going to lead to him getting more opportunities. It's right. going to lead to like him being exited from that. So what people need to sometimes is that I think we can be hard on older, on our, on our, on our elders and we can ask, why didn't you do this? Why didn't mm-hmm. you do that? Why I would have, you know, we grew up, everybody likes to believe they'd have run off the plantation if they were slaves. Right. <laughs> everybody likes to believe. I wouldn't have been. Yeah. I was driving through Virginia. I was in, I was in Loudoun County this past weekend mm. and doing a little short vacation with my wife. And I was driving, you know, we were staying at this resort. We left the resort. We drove about 10 miles and I'm driving along the road and I'm like, it's just nothing but bush and trees. Yeah. If somebody just puts you here, from some part of the world, you wouldn't know where the hell you were mm-hmm. and you wouldn't have nowhere to go. So this idea that you, this idea that we sometimes have that we would act in a different way under different circumstances, I think we just need to it's have easier a little bit, to say. We need to have a little more compassion and a little bit more empathy for what people's experiences were and understand that they were doing the best they could with what they had at the time. You know, they're doing the best they could with what they had at the time. Yeah. And that's a lot. And I, and I, and, um, and I just have, I have a lot of admiration for, from you know, for that, for my elders, for those reasons. And I don't think I had a lot of that when I was younger. I think there was a lot of judgment. But as I've gotten older myself and see sometimes that people could judge even me, like around my actions or what I have and have not done. And you start to have more empathy for people. You recognize what they were going through and what they were experiencing and what they had access to and what was, what they needed, who they needed to show up for and how important it was to put food on the table and how a roof over somebody's head. And I couldn't be out at that march because I needed to take care of this. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. Pro- now, like, it wasn't just that I didn't care. It's like I had other things I had to focus right. on. Put food on the table. Um, you know, it was times where the, the, the woman, they couldn't work. Yeah. You know, so it was a different thing, a different dynamic. That's why it's like, you know, um, 
this generation now, you know, my generation, we get into the thing of like, oh, is the man going to pay all the bills and the guy? Mm. And like one day I was, you know, having a conversation with someone. I was like, well, you know, back then in certain cases, the woman couldn't work. The man yeah. couldn't vote. You know, getting jobs was different. They yeah. believed in a stay-at-home mom and nurture thing. But it's like back then, rent won $2,500 a month, you know, in D.C. So, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that to say that's always, a th- uh, I think sometimes people try to compare generations. But it's yeah. like the circumstances were so different. Yeah. You can't compare what was happening in the sixties to what's happening now. Where it's like now they'll say to be comfortable in DC, you need to be making like a hundred and some thousand. You know where yeah. our grandparents would dream of that kind of money. You know where now yeah. I, we 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 may look at a hundred k and think like oh it's something, but it ain't nothing. But back then yeah. they may look at that as like that was everything. I mean, 100K, I mean, I mean, that's, we're talking now, we're talking about economics and we're talking about inflation and we're talking about, you know, the devaluation of labor and the dollar. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. Economic Policy Institute has done some really interesting research to just demonstrate, like, how, how, while, like, you know, wealth has been, exas- wealth inequality has been exacerbated, the value of labor has been, you know, has been, has been deflated, has been, has depreciated over time, has been completely... Um, so that it, it was the case that when my parents were coming, when, when, you know, in my entire neighborhood, I could say this as a matter of fact, the families in the neighborhood, by and large, I would say, you know, many of them, I don't know, I kids, I, don't, I was a kid, but many of them, the, 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 the mothers and wives, they were, they worked in the house. They, they didn't work out. They didn't have jobs outside of the house. Like my mom, I remember when I was a kid, you know, she and a bunch of her friends in the neighborhood, they decided to open up a secondhand shop, like a second, it was in Tacoma Park, they opened up, I want to say, yeah. And that was a lot of that because they, their husbands were making enough money, you know, for them to to have different, to make different choices about what they wanted to do with their day. Right. Now, now that changed when my parents divorced. My mom, you know, got a job and she ended up working for D.C. government for 30 years and, you okay. know, that was a really important part of it. Which agency? She worked in, um, initially it was called MBOC back in the day. It was a Minority Business and Opportunity Commission and then I think over the years... So now it's like of, a small yeah, business. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have she, a, she kind a of mentor who was working over there, yeah. Yeah, so she, and she developed an incredible passion for it and still does this work in a, in a different capacity, but she developed an incredible passion for working with helping, you know, small businesses, small minority owned businesses in DC, you know, to build up, develop, become more self, be more, become more sustaining. And that was her way of giving back. Yeah. You know, and it took me a long time to understand, oh, that's her contribution, her contribution to this larger struggle that we're all in. Like mine might be through this work and through this, that, and the third and other, but it is people like, you know, our mothers and our sisters and all these other folks who are getting up on a day-to-day basis and doing, you know, that silent work, that work that isn't being necessarily praised and kind of, you know, you don't get all the shout outs on Twitter or whatever, but it's right. that work that makes a huge difference because she's going to help and make sure X, Y, and Z gets a contract. And that contract is going to actually become the basis of funding and the foundation for them to be able to build a business. And that building of a business is going to be the foundation for them to be able to create wealth to transition to their family and then move on. And that, that's huge and that's significant. And that's what we, you know, have often not had access to. So those are, those are things that I think of, you know, Need to that are often aren't really discussed and thoroughly explored, but that are important. Yeah, sure. So yeah, um, you know, earlier one thing I noticed that you talked about was just you know your experience as far as growing up. You know, I was saying a, a more privileged position compared to everyone else in DC. You know, compared to if you, yeah, you know, it was uh, and that was hard too. Man. Yeah, and then just kind of speaking on that, you know, having those experiences, but as you said, you know, the crap. The crack epidemic still yeah. impacted you and your friends. It still impacted everything going on yeah. in this city. It's not like we're in Chicago, a huge city. Nah, it's a you're small, small place. Yeah. 
So when I think about your work, you know, when I think about the after uh, after school all stars, when I think yeah. about the Aussie work, and we think about urban education, you know, yeah. what would you say, you know, some of the the, the main causes that you've seen that kind of keeps that disparity of you know black kids compared to other races, and what are some solutions that you say mm-hmm. you know kind of help you know change that? Oh my gosh, I mean, this is the million dollar question. I think. You know, I think there's a, you know, there's a, what I've experienced is that, um, you know, and, and is that we often think that we can solve problems in isolation mm-hmm. and that there's a connection between all the things that we're trying to solve. So if it's, if you find an issue where there's an education gap, it's probably also poverty and it's also probably like some fractured homes. And it's probably also people that are locked up and it's probably like you can, you can probably tell a story about what else is going on mm-hmm. when you look at something like a piece of data that says that this is a huge disparity in the student's performance. Yeah. And I think there have been movements like community schools are, are attempting to, to address this, like promise zones, you know, think about what the Harlem children's zone has been about. Like, okay, we need, we need holistic approaches yeah. to really get at these issues because sometimes you think we take a piecemeal approach a charity pro approach sometimes like if we just get this one kid out, you know, or if we just dissolve this one prop like but the challenge and the reality is that all of these things are interconnected. And unless you are, are taking an interconnected and holistic approach to you and that requires deep, deep investment exactly. and sustained investment. Yeah. So I think I start with like the amount of money that we have made historically as a commitment to education is it's just not enough. And we know it's not enough. Right. And then beyond that, we have this focus and attention. I mean, cause I, even someone who's worked in education, worked in adjacent education fields is that there's often this hyper focus on the kids and it's not a focus on the families, mm-hmm. right? The way in which black and brown communities in particular, I think, and I don't want to assume that everybody else doesn't have these experiences as well, but like communities are um, in the role that, in that families play in, in a child's life. Um, mean that you can't just invest in the kid and think you're going to solve it. Actually, you actually got to invest in the family. You got to invest. In, so mom exactly. and dad, and it's probably not just mom and dad because we're talking about people who have hybrid families. Yeah. Those families might be cousins and uncles and other people who don't show up as formal and formal in a formal like cousin over here who's close. Like all those things yeah. are part of the ecosystem of a young person's yeah. life, and you have to be able to think about how am I. And am I willing to make the investment not only in the young person? Because I think psychologically we have this problem where we're okay investing in young people because we think of them as innocent. Right. But somehow we are we put blame on adults and they feel like we're not willing to make the same kind of investment in, a, in an adult because they, they should have they should have done yeah. better in school. <laughs> they should have done X, Y, and Z. And so there's a, a – and, and we see that as part of our – it's at the, at the, the national level in our society. Part of what I struggle with with conservatives is that – there's all, I feel like there's a mean spiritedness around the understanding of how how intractable and, and holistic the experience of poverty can be, mm-hmm. and there's a sense that people are just to blame for their behaviors, and they should be doing better because they should just have made better decisions, right? You know, um, and when, people think it's so easy, and they think it's so easy, yeah. Like it's, you know, I, I I even I know that I had to go through my own learning around that too. Yeah. You know, I had some periods in my life where I've had I found myself standing in judgment. And looking at my own and asking why you ain't doing this or if you just and I know everybody has responsibility but but the reality is I see that we're just an interconnected society and that people just need help man and we need to be okay giving people help 
So, so I guess to, to short answer to the question, we talk about the, the, what are some of the solutions that I start with the big solution is we need a significant sustained investment in communities that doesn't just have a five-year window because sometimes right. you get a five-year grant to do X and then the five-year grant up and then we're gone. Like that's not helpful and if, yeah. actually. And, and, and those type of things like you're trying to do work in five years, but you're trying to correct. 18 yeah. years of wrongdoing or 18 years, you know, just And you know it. Stuff. And you need the first year to get it off the ground. Yeah. And then you realize when you give an, when you, when you make an investment in certain, in like communities that have never been really invested in any very, you have people that are distrustful. You got to build trust. You got people who, you know, aren't conditioned and socialized to show up to the things that you want them to show up to all the time. Like, oh, I have a meeting on next Y and Z. Like, yeah. well, they ain't show up to the meetings. They don't, that doesn't mean they don't care. They might have had other other response. Right. So it's just like we, we organize solutions often without really taking into consideration all the different kinds of challenges that are going to come into play. And that, therefore, we need to scale. We need to think about our vision for that solution over a longer period of time. But again, because so much of this stuff is politicized, it's built around administrations. It's mm-hmm. built around, and every time a new administration comes in, whether it's a mayor, governor, or at the federal level, the president, they have a new set of prerogatives right. and priorities, and they're going to change. And then part of how they define themselves as successful is they're going to just throw away whatever else anybody else was doing, and they're going to bring new people in, and they're going to change it all up. It and, and then what you have is folks in community, like, I've seen this before, and therefore I don't believe that you actually care. You're here today, but you're not going to be here tomorrow. Yeah. People have said that to me. Mm-hmm. When I was coming in, running organizations, trying to like, oh, I'm about to bring this new money in. They're like, yeah, okay. Right, right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and everything you just said, you know, it, it makes me think about, um, it, it makes me think about another piece of it is understanding. And I say understanding where it's like, you know, some people may have their perspectives, opinions on like, oh, well, black people should do this. Or, oh, these kids need to do X, Y, and the thing. So it goes into, you know, those that are listening is, you know, the title of your book, and I'm saying this relates yeah. to it because most of the people in these positions to pull these strings are white males. Yeah. So Letter to My White Male Friends, that's yeah. the book that's dropping on June 15th. 15th. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about that. You know, yeah. the meaning of it, what, what the title, the title's definitely catchy, you know, <laughs> but, you know, let's yeah. talk about that, you know, and then yeah. tell people where they can find it and the whole nine yeah. yards. Well, first of all, the book will, is available everywhere. Um, really excited. There's been some really positive support around the book already. I'm really humbled and grateful for the opportunity to write a book during a pandemic. Who gets to do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I don't take that lightly. It's a small book and intentionally it's a small book because I wanted to write something that people could, that would be, um, that wouldn't be a, a tone that wouldn't take people like forever to get through. I wanted for, I wanted to distill some ideas and some insights that I've had in my journey that others could really be attached to and learn from. So it started last summer when I wrote a letter around this time, as a matter of fact, roughly after like a week, it was a few days after the George Floyd uh, murder. Okay. I just felt compelled because a number of my white friends were reaching out to me. And, and, how, did, asked, how, and how did that make you feel? Because the same thing happened to me. Like, and it was, yeah. it was a little awkward. Well, so that's part of why I wrote the letter. Yeah. Because I feel like part of the problem in the way that we've, we, we experience and talk about and think about and try to address race in this country is that it's, a, it's only the problem of black people. And it's not white people's problem too. Mm-hmm. Like just because you don't feel like you're suffering from it or struggling with it in the same way doesn't mean it's not done harm to you too. And I just think that the harm sometimes is more abstract and you have a harder time connecting to it. But then I reckon, but then I ask questions like, you know, when a black person is killed in a police shooting, do you feel, what do you feel? Mm-hmm. Do you feel anything? Yeah. Right. Because that's a human being's life who was taken away. And if your automatic reaction is to go into the, well, he must have done something wrong. Right. Well, if but it's even automatically if he did, he and even he did to die, right? right? 
And I think that has to do with the normalization of black death. And people are very, very casual about black death. And they're very casual about violence. And then they justify it by saying such things as, well, black people commit violence against each other all the time. So why is it any different? Why, why do you only in the uproar now because police officers are the ones? And when I say, well, because police officers are paid by tax dollars. Right. <laughs> like you actually are you're paid by tax dollars and therefore you have unique, you have unique authority under the scope of, you know, the law. You know, and that's problematic, therefore. So that's a, one of the, the so that the sort of initiating force behind this, the book was a letter that I wrote to some of my close friends as an appeal to them to think about race and racism, not just as a, I'm worried about you, Dax, but I'm like, worry about yourself. Think about how this is affecting you, too. And I try to understand how it is the case that only in 2020, at that point at least, this is something that you're starting to take more seriously. Exactly. Wow. That, what that, is what has yeah. blocked you from feeling and having a deeper connection yeah. oh, to these things? The pan, it was the pandemic. Yeah, and like, we know that it was only if because, it had happened any other time. We know this because when it happened, I'm like, okay, Freddie Gray, Trayvon Martin. Yeah, like, like, what's different know, here? When, when we were, like, this ain't this ain't new. So when people are asking me how I feel, and you know, I did, I got invited to a lot of those safe space talks. I declined them all mm-hmm. because first of all, it was like, all right, I know this is you know. And I said people don't have good intentions, but it was just like, okay. For me, I'm like, man, y'all a little bit late. It's like, how do I feel? Like, mm-hmm. before George Floyd happened, like, how do I feel? Like, I'm living in South Florida. I go running at night. I feel that <laughs> I don't need to look suspect. I feel right. that I need to make sure I don't look like maybe some bars. Like, that's the black experience. Yeah. So, for me, I, it definitely was, like, real awkward. I was just like, man, like... <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what y'all want me to say. Like, I deal with this on a daily basis, but yeah. it's like, this has been going on, you know, like, and, and yeah. you know, the diversity thing, all that type of stuff. I think it's just now really got some real traction. Like, yeah. after, like, George Floyd, you know, situation, like, I think really is what kind of woke people up because they sat home and they were able to see what happened. But it's, yeah, man. But, but, you know, it's, so the book, for me, what I recognize in the letter was that people responded in a way and it, and it went viral and people kind of found it all over the world. And that what I think people were responding to was that it felt like an invitation and mm-hmm. not, and not a judgment. Yeah. It felt like an opportunity to learn and not that they were being shamed. And I wasn't, cause I love my, 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 I, I, I have friends across the spectrum like, yeah. and I love my people, man. And I call them all my people cause yeah. they're my people. Right. You know, I show up for you, you show up for me. And I have my experience. And I think it's still shocking for a lot of, it was shocking for a lot of people to think, oh, this black guy who's got these accomplishments and da 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 He's had experiences with the police. He's been yeah. arrested before. He's, and I'm like, wow, like, why do you see, what What about me has given you the impression that somehow that only happens to other, like, and that tells you right there, like that in your belief in your mind that it only happens to certain black people or certain black men. So let's 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 do some work here. Yeah. And so the idea of the book became: I want to take you on a bit of a journey. Mm-hmm. So part of it is me taking you on a bit of a journey through my experience yeah. inside white institutions, because yeah. I think part of how, part of why white folks struggle to understand, like yesterday, the former vice president said that he believes, and he said it many times. This is Mike Pence. He blinks. He thinks that you know. Systemic racism is some shit that was made, some stuff that was made up by people on the left, and I'm like, I I get that from the perspective of a person who just doesn't know. You don't know, like, yeah. you just don't understand and what you, right. and you don't, and you're not willing to learn. Mm-hmm. And because of your arrogance, 
in your conceit and your sense that you know everything or you know all that there is to know about these things, you 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 sit in a kind of confidence in your judgment, yeah, an assumption. You know, I was reading recently. There's a new book out about the Second Amendment. This woman okay. did a whole series of she did research to demonstrate and to reveal that many reasons that the Second Amendment was passed in the first place was so that local authorities had the ability to raise militias to fight and resist slave to slave yeah. revolts. So you start to understand like how deep and people get, and there's always a pushback when we try to do a historical analysis right. of where the roots of so many of these things are. People don't want to do that work. They don't want to uncover these things. And, yeah. and what I feel like I'm trying to do in the book is that the uncovering is important. It's necessary. And because we're uncovering it and dealing with it and talking about it doesn't mean I think you're a bad person. Right. It doesn't mean I don't think it doesn't mean I want you to be canceled because I don't want you to just be canceled. I'm not, it's not what yeah. this is about. Like, I want us to stop doing this kind of harm. I want us to like really reflect on the harm that this has done. To, to you, because I look at like a lot of my friends who have, you know, who sit in positions of authority and power and even some of my clients, what's, what's, what strikes me, and I talk about this in the book as well, is how many of them have said to me on the side, like, yeah, man, like I really want to do something, you know, but, you know, I just can't find black talent, you know, or I, um, or I look at my organization and I'm like, <laughs> it's like we're mostly white led and we don't have any black people and they all think that their story is unique. Yeah. And I tell them, I'm like, your story isn't unique. Right. What do you think? two generations of mass incarceration does. Like, it's funny that people yeah. didn't make the connection. When you take people off the street, you've ostensibly taken away two generations of black mm -hmm. men and women. And, you know, obviously other folks of color as well, but particularly and predominantly black, you've taken, you've been, that's a form of genocide. Like, you've removed people from society and then you ask why they're not there. You remove people from opportunity and ask why they're not in jobs. Mm -hmm. And then when they get out and they've served their time, they have this record that they can't even, they can't ever shake. So it just seems, it's very striking to me that I think white, what, what I encountered was that some of the f white folks in my life had not seen the connection between the sort of things that we've done as a society and the sort of realities we're living in. Yeah. And, yeah. And um, I'm glad you just said that because I was going to ask, you know, with the book, Letter to My White Male Friends, how do you, how are you going to ensure that this book gets in front of those white males? Like, and not just your friends, but those yeah. who may just be unaware of the black experience or unaware of like, you know, like you say, um, former vice president make a comment that, oh, systematic racism was made up, you know, or like, you know, you get pushed back from people, Everywhere. black lives matter and all those type of things. Yeah. So how, what are you doing? Well, I, I think first of all, I think first of all, there's an army of people that are doing this work. Like I'm mm -hmm. just, you know, I'm a foot soldier out here doing the work that I'm doing the work in my corner of the world and my, in my sphere of influence. But there's a lot of brilliant people who are writing about these things who've been, you know, obviously we've seen, you know, what's happened to Ben Cole, Hannah Jones in recent weeks in terms of the 1619 project just made too many people uncomfortable and they want to shut it down and silence it. But what I'm pointing out is like that it's just, it's, I'm, I'm one amongst a number of voices that are out here speaking around these issues. I think what I've tried to do explicitly is speak to a particular audience that I think folks don't often want to address. Like we don't often just say straight up, I need to talk to you, white man, and I want us to have a conversation. And it's not because I want us to be in an argument. I'm not trying to have an argument with you. I told right. you that. Like if we have, if you are truly my friend, if we're truly, truly like, you know, in relationship with one another and friends with one another, I need you to like begin to understand and think about these things in a bit of a different way. So, what I've been encouraged by is that there have already been some organic um, groups of white men that have started to form themselves and do some learning around their own experience. And, okay. I, and I've been in contact with them. So last summer, a group of white men decided to start to organize some of it being some of it partially instigated by the letter. And they started to, they created their own curriculum. 
Okay. And they started to meet on a weekly basis and then they brought other white men in and they've been doing their own work. And I think that's really, really important to see white men just doing their own work and do mm-hmm. their own reflection around it. I'm not saying you got to believe everything I say because everything I say, you know, I, I, but you need to learn for yourself. Yeah. So that's happening. I have the benefit of, you know, um, I mean, I mean, I'm doing some media, doing some tours, some book tour. I have a book tour coming up, you know, so I'm going to have an opportunity to be in front of a few people and, you know, I have a, you know, my, I have a business and I work in the DEI space. So I have an opportunity to also be in that space. And, and I think like, I think when something is done right and with right intention, and I say this with utmost sincerity, when something is done right and with right intention, it finds its way in the world and it finds its way to the people who need to, who need to receive for it. Sure, for sure. And so I can only, and I have to tell my, as I tell you this, I have to tell myself this too, because yeah. you get, when a book's about to come out, nerves kick in, anxiety, people don't like it. I don't know what's going to happen, blah, 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 blah. But I have to go back to my faith and a recognition mm. that, 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 you know, God gave me a gift to be able to offer to Absolutely. the world. And therefore it's not for my, it's not my job to, to direct. It's not my job to know how it's going to affect people my job was to just follow to listen to the voices that came to and through me yeah to share it with the world and allow it to be received by people mm-hmm. and so i fundamentally believe that if something is if some if, if something is right in the right time in the right right all these then it will be found you know i i mean i, I, I so that's so that's my that's my excitement and there's gonna be a lot of pushback too yeah for sure I entire, you know I, I, there's gonna be a lot of people who are <laughs> There's already people who I know are angry. Like, why? Who am I to write this? Why are you writing this? You know, this is just you're being a, you're being a racist by writing this. Yeah. Like all That's sorts of things. That, that, it's I it's like ba- that it's one. baffling. It's strange, but it's also an emotional you know, reaction. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. Truth hurts. That's what yeah. it really is. You know, boils down to the truth hurts. Um, but I would rather people say that it hurts, right, than just jump to anger. Because yes. I'm a, I'm a believer that anger is nothing but a manifestation of hurt. Mm-hmm. So I would rather us have the conversation about why do you feel hurt, yeah. than us just talk about your anger. Because your hurt is about something that I'm saying or something that you're seeing or somehow something is being communicated to you and you feel left out or you feel called out or you feel something. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Right. Because then maybe we can talk about, well, actually, that's the experience that that my folks have been having for a long time. Mm-hmm. The feeling that you have of like, why are people picking on me? Why are people talking? Bruh, you right. want to talk about it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can talk about yeah. that. And then maybe we can see that we're not that different. Mm-hmm. You don't want that feeling either. Right. Mm-hmm. So then why do you have why are you OK with that feeling? being thrust upon my, my community. Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, and, and recognizing that honestly, like, you know, they, I, 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 and I fundamentally believe this is that quite often these tensions are around and are, they're undergirded and the foundation of them is that there's a, there is limited opportunity. There's limited resources. There's limited jobs. There's li- it's a scarcity mindset and mm-hmm. mentality. I just believe that there's enough for everybody. There's enough yeah. room. There's enough houses. There's enough. There's enough land. There's enough water. There's enough for everybody. So my success or the success of Black people in this in this day and age is not going to mean and it it's not about the. It's not. It doesn't mean that white people are going to get left behind and left out. There's right. enough for everybody. Yeah. Actually, everybody wants to be. You know thrive and yeah. succeed and why we, can't there be enough yeah, we, for everybody we want right like as I got lost around here yeah. I was on the back streets it's like the match is like and seriously bro uh. I'm riding past and like I ran through my head like it was a thought of like why can't I not have this why shouldn't I not have this and that was when I was a kid I would ride to Virginia and walk in those neighborhoods and that's what kept me focused though because if you're coming mm-hmm. out and you're seeing like you know you're seeing all the hustlers and people that's doing this or the people that's you know hood doing their stuff if that's all you see, you're going to think that's the route right. to get out. But like, or you're going to think like, this is all that I have here. 
Right. And it was like for me when I used to go out there in Virginia, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna get this one this day. I'm gonna too. be here. I'm gonna, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, man. I, I, I just want to say, man, I know we coming close to the end. Um, the work that you're doing is amazing. You've been doing amazing work, mm-hmm. but I think with this, and specifically with a book, and you know, for those listening, like this isn't his first book, but I think the things, what you know, what are great about when people write books is that it outlasts you. I know. So it's like this copy, whatever, yeah. whatever library here, yeah. DC Library, Library Con, whatever, like it's going to be there. And it's like, you know, we have content, video, and audio that we could leave behind, but I think a book it's a, you is know, different. You know, with my daughter, my daughter's two, and you know, God willing, everything will go right. My, my wife is pregnant, and we're waiting and expecting our, our first Congratulations. little Congratulations. You know, he's due in August. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about them when they're old enough. Reaching, reaching on the bookshelf and seeing their dad's books mm, next yeah. to all these other people's books. Yeah, and to me that means that they're going to know that that's possible for them too. Right. Like I didn't have nobody I knew growing up. I didn't know writers. I didn't right. know. Right. I didn't know anybody who made a career. You didn't even think it was possible. I didn't think that. Think was like, oh, that's for the famous rich people. Like, yeah, it's not even <laughs> and people even ask me now, like, how do you get a book published? Like, what do you do? You know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Obviously, there's a lot of, you can publish on your own. You can. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, you might, a major publisher might approach you and might want to work with you in your book. I mean, there's a lot of things, a lot of ways for it to happen, you know, and I will just say I've done, I've done it all. I've had major publishers. I've self-published. I've done, I've done it all. And the thing that I am most proud of is that I did it and that I did it. And you know, I go back to even you talk about like your dreams. I did it not because I, and often because often in spite of the fact that I didn't have the resources, I had to make time. You know, I had to get up sometimes six o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning so I could write and then go to work and then come home and write some more. You know, I wasn't getting paid for a lot of things that I've written in my mm-hmm. life. I've written a ton of things that nobody paid me for. Yeah. I have a, I have a box full of journals from all of my years in my 20s and 30s. I would keep journals. I would just write, write, practice, 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 read, 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 read. And it is something that I am really, really proud of to be able to share with the world at this point as a gift and as a talent and recognizing that's all I'm able to do is to share it with people and that they have to take it and interpret it the way they take it and interpret it. And they'll do with it what they do with it. And some people will love it. Some people will like, mm, that's cool, and move on. And some people might even hate it. But it's the fact of the matter of just being able to do it to me as a gift. And I'm really, really grateful for that opportunity because I know a lot of people would like to be able to be in a position where I am. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah. You know, I want to say to you too, man, I mean, you know, it's, it is so, so meaningful to have a friendship with you, you know, yeah, likewise. Um, and you inspire me. You always have, always, always have. In many ways, I've even looked up to you like, you, like I thought about how you, you at 21, you at 20, you at 22, the sort of the expectation that we, that I put on you and you showed up mm-hmm. the feedback that you would, I would give you around like what was working what was not working x y and z and the way you would receive feedback and take feedback and not take it personally and not let your ego get involved and not let that and you would take it and you would work with it i just think that when you go back to the question of what the challenges of, of our community are i think there is some challenges that we have to as individuals now as, as individuals and i think it's particularly young young black men it's like be willing and be open to somebody giving you some direction you know Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us, a lot of young folks don't want direction from anybody. They want to just have it all figured out already. I'm like, just be open. Just yeah. be open, you know? For sure. 
But yeah, man, I definitely um, appreciate you for coming on the show, bro. You know, starting off season two, man. You done set the bar high. So yeah. the guest is coming after this, man. I got to come with y'all stuff. But, you know, all seriousness, bro. And I'm looking forward to reading the book. I'm yeah. um, looking forward to continuing to support you and all the great things that you have coming up. And those that are listening, it's Letters to My White Male Friends. Um, that's available on June 15th. I'll post the link and everything, you know, um, in the description um, of the episode. So appreciate you, bro. And we're going to do it again. Love you, man. My man. Thank you for tuning into Dreams by Any Means Motivation Station, where hustle plus faith equals success. Stay tuned for the next episode.